In this market, especially being a venture investor, I think requires true decisiveness and fast, sometimes too fast. If you wait too long, you miss opportunities. And if you miss opportunities, chances are when they next materialize, they're at an order of magnitude more expensive or more valuable in terms of kind of honing in and building comfort around decisiveness then has probably played to my advantage over time. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Nick Brown is co-founder and managing partner at Imaginary Ventures, a venture capital firm focusing on the consumer product and retail enablement sectors. Founded in partnership with Natalie Massonette, the founder and former CEO of Net-A-Porter, Imaginary invests in best-in-class brands, platforms, and entrepreneurs that are changing how a new generations of consumers live, eat, and shop. Stage and geography agnostic. Key investments include Everlane, Reformation, Glossier, Skims, Farfetch, Daily Harvest, and many others. Nick has built a career backing direct-to-consumer brands that are challenging the incumbents. I began my conversation with Nick by asking him about growing up and being a lifelong New Yorker. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So I grew up in New York City. I grew up very close to where I live now. I grew up on the Upper West Side. I then moved to the Upper East Side in high school, which is kind of where I live now. And, you know, in between, I I spent most of my 20s trying to be youthful and cool and living south of 14th Street. And I've been spending most of my 30s just progressively moving further and further up. So who knows where I'll end up um, 10 years from now. But I grew up in New York, you know, went to the same school, kind of K through 12, went away for college but outside of that, have pretty much been here my entire life. And I think I part of that is because I, I love New York and I have a family here and a foundation here and work in an industry where I think being in New York is additive, probably not essential, but definitely additive. But also because I've been lucky enough in my professional career to do things or work in jobs where I can travel pretty consistently and see new places. And, you know, I think. You know, New York can be insular. Some people love that. Some people don't love that. I think I clearly like the insularity, but I think part of why I like it is because I have a forum to leave. And for New York and just thinking about it, when you think about your entrepreneurial journey and business, and you remember those days back when you were growing up here, elementary school and and really your, your entire life, what were some of the things you think really shaped you as a person and have kind of helped you in in terms of your business success? So my mother has been at not in the same role, but has worked for the same employer for over 40 years. And so I think I saw loyalty and longevity at a very early age. So my mother graduated, she had me at 30. She obviously graduated at 21 and didn't leave her job since then. So I think on the one hand, I sort of saw that as probably not a North Star, but certainly an example of 
a value of being a part of a business that you felt deeply connected to and almost familial. And I think I definitely tried to take pieces of that in the business that I've created. And then I don't think I knew it at the time, but my dad was definitely an entrepreneur. Um, My dad worked at Bankers Trust um, for many years and then went out on his own probably in the mid nineties to smart, to start a hedge fund at the time it was, it was very small and it was a different world. I think, I don't know how many hedge funds existed when he started doing that, but a fraction of them that, that do today and the market for them just wasn't very developed. And I don't think I realized at the time that that was an entrepreneurial move, but actually probably to a high schooler felt like an extension of what he was doing before. But finding investors, building a team, working for yourself, I think those are those are things that he not only did, but allowed me to sort of see as um, not only possible, but things that sort of felt effortless in a way. Like I, I think my father found a way to make being an entrepreneur look easy and it's never easy, but I had a vantage point that sort of reminded me of that. And I think, you know, I was really lucky. I went to the same kind of all boys school in New York City, K through 12, uh, 50 kids graduated, probably 35 of us were in the same school that whole period. And, you know, I learned early on how to work really, really hard academically. And I was also in an institute, not an institution, but I was at a, at a school where my peers and the community really valued academic excellence. Like I think oftentimes you hear about other sort of growing up stories and being a good student is not necessarily being a popular student. And I think I came from a setting where doing well was something to be proud of and something that was very much encouraged by your peers. And so, you know, I was, I was very, very lucky there. And then in a funny way, I think a lot of my career after that had a lot of luck associated with it. I graduated in 2008 from college and I had been an intern in JP Morgan's M&A group my junior year and my sophomore year, actually. And I went back and joined full-time. And I don't, the thing about an internship that no one reminds you of when you go in full-time is that there isn't an expiration date. So, you know, when you do a two-month internship, you know, you're absorbing as much information as you can, but you also have light at the end of the tunnel. I think when you jump into something full-time, that light goes away and you're sort of forced to reconcile, is this something I want to do or is this something that I don't want to do? 2009, 2008 was not the ideal moment to be an analyst in an investment bank. And I left about a year into the program, which I, I sort of regret in retrospect. I I think those programs are two years for a reason. And oftentimes when we interview people who sort of ask about that, I say that I think the growing curve starts to decay, but I do think it's exponential in the beginning. And I probably lost a piece of that, but I was super unhappy. I wasn't, I didn't feel fulfilled professionally. How come? Why were you unhappy and why, why didn't you feel fulfilled? I don't think that I was a great analyst. And I think that I probably was not detail oriented enough. I probably didn't play the politics in the way that I should have. And I was always attracted to more creative elements of finance. Like I remember even even when I interned, 
I gravitated towards consumer product deals. I gravitated towards kind of change that was happening in and around e-commerce. The legacy stuff didn't really interest me. And I also think I gravitated towards people and not just people within the organization of the bank that you're in, but kind of getting to know clients and companies, you know, that was always really rewarding. And there's a lot of bureaucracy in these kind of programs. It takes a long time, understandably so, I think, to earn one's right to kind of be client-facing and sort of hit some element of what success looks like. Yeah, I think and, as an entrepreneur, it's very difficult, especially when you are in a situation like that. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs where you just talked about it, I find myself very similar with not wanting to play the politics, not being great at that game. And politics and being able to play that game are such an important part of corporate America. And was that kind of maybe a time when you started thinking, you know, and I know you we'll, we'll talk about where you went, but kind of thinking like, hey, maybe I'd rather be like my father. I'd rather start my own business. Were those some of the main drivers? Not at the time. I wasn't forward thinking enough to figure out what would make me happy. I was forward thinking enough to realize that I wasn't happy doing what I was doing, but I hadn't made that connection as to what I could do or what I could do differently to be fulfilled. And I think I was, I think I was open-minded to taking a risk right? Like I left without any job. I left without any job security, really. And so my parents didn't love that idea. A lot of my friends didn't encourage that idea. But for me, it was important. And I had a degree of confidence that it would work itself out and I would find what was right. So I I was willing to take the risk. I was willing and capable of acknowledging what wasn't working, but I didn't have a clue what would make me more happy. That's the truth. And at that point, you know, when you decide to leave, right, and so many people in your ear, your parents, and for a lot of entrepreneurs, they're told, you know, what are you doing? Like, you can have a great life, great, you know, especially if you're in a good position. Was there a lot of self-doubt, even though you had that confidence? And, and, you know, were you, was it a back and forth decision? Or, you know, were you pretty much like, I'm doing this probably for a week or two. It was certainly wasn't more drawn out than that. And when I made the decision, it was rapid. Like when I finally kind of came to terms with that, it was a pretty clear departure. Now, you know, they didn't put up much of a fight in terms of discouraging me from leaving. Now, that might have been because of the moment in the market. It might have been because I wasn't the best analyst, or it might have been because some other reason, who knows? But it was pretty fast. And I think that decisiveness has probably helped other things that I've done since then. I think in this market, especially being a venture investor, I think requires true decisiveness and fast, sometimes too fast. If you wait too long, you miss opportunities. And if you miss opportunities, chances are when they next materialize, they're at an order of magnitude more expensive or more valuable in terms of what the business is worth. So I actually think kind of honing in and building comfort around decisiveness then has probably played to my advantage over time. And and I think that's been progressive, right? Like when I first started investing 10 years ago, you could be more thoughtful. 
right? I mean, maybe thoughtful is the wrong word. You could take more time before making a decision to deploy capital. You really can't do that anymore. The world is too institutionalized. There's too much capital. There's too few exceptional entrepreneurs that you just don't have the ability to have a process that looked like the one that did 10 years ago. So I think that that was probably a helpful way to develop that skill. And going back to that time, you made the decision, like you said, decisiveness, which is great because it's become maybe one of your superpowers, right? And what you do now. How did it then, like you said, you knew what you didn't want to do, but how then did you figure out what you wanted to do and get into the VC world? So I, at the time, I didn't really know what venture capital was. I mean, I knew that there were startups and I knew there were startups that received funding. But outside of that, you know, the sort of delineation of stage, I didn't understand who backed venture funds. I didn't understand um, the mix of sort of deal flow and additive value. I didn't really understand. That was all super new. So I basically, after I left, I took probably the better part of three months meeting everyone that I could meeting every entrepreneur that was in and around my ecosystem. I was lucky that a lot of the people that I graduated from college with had either just started in venture, some had created their own funds, some had started startups. So I had this small little Petri dish in order to meet people from. And I think as is the beautiful case with venture always, the more people you meet, the more relationships you unlock down the future. So each relationship kind of unlocks this new set of relationships if you take advantage of it. So I met everybody that I could. And I think it was a kind of an exciting time for New York and the New York venture scene. At that moment, a lot of stuff I think was was starting to change. You had the proliferation of Facebook that allowed for real scale. Mobile was much more pervasive. Um, You had companies sort of developing a New York presence in a real way. You had New York firms like Union Square and Spark and General Catalyst kind of building real franchises. And so the building blocks were there and they were and they were kind of growing. And I was introduced to a founder building a fashion product called Liss. It still exists today. It's a super successful business backed by great people. And it was founded by a former associate at Balderton. And it was really trying to think about fashion without the inventory. So sort of taking what, you know, Netaporte had done and ultimately elements of what companies like Farfetch have done since then and tried to build a inventoryless model that connected customers with product everywhere. And, you know, it was probably the first business I saw where I was felt like there was something unique and something differentiated happening. I understood just, you know, through my work on the consumer side at JP Morgan, how challenging inventory was, especially inventory in fashion, which tends to be very seasonal and very fickle. So I understood that. I understood a little bit about what was happening in terms of the web and the internet and how people were discovering product and fashion. And, you know, at the time, more and more businesses were building out their own e-commerce businesses. And so you were kind of able to say, all right, five years from now, Gucci will have sort of a standalone site. Armani will have a standalone site. We're going to sit in the middle and connect all those things together. So we spent some time together. We got to know each other as friends. 
And he introduced me to one of his early backers, which was a group called 14W, which uh, is a phenomenal kind of venture practice, which sort of spun out of an independent family office. It's still, it's still associated with one, but at the time it functioned more as kind of a private family entity. And he introduced me to them and the rest was sort of serendipitous. I mean, they were looking for an associate jack of all trades to join the team. There was no real template as to what I would be spending my time doing. I didn't know if it would be fund investments. I didn't know if it would be direct investments. I didn't know if it would be early stage, late stage thematic, but it was an opportunity for me to meet more entrepreneurs, see more deals and learn about what was happening in the ecosystem for basically getting paid to do so. Was there a time you take the job, you get your introduction to VC, was there a time you thought maybe you made a mistake, maybe this wasn't for you? No, and I think that was really a testament to the people that I worked with at 14W, and, and I actually have taken elements of this in our firm, and I know Natalie does too, I got dropped into the deep end real fast. And again, like, you know, back to our luck point, I started working with them in 2010, which was right as this kind of collision of brand and retail innovation started to happen. So wholesale was being called into question. Millennials finally had money that they could spend and they had different expectations on those products distribution was becoming much more meaningful. Facebook was cheap, so you could hit scale really, really quickly. And so you saw the dawn of Warby Parker, Harry's, Everlane, Glossier, Reformation, all these incredible businesses that were sort of born out of that moment. And I never felt in any way restricted during my time working with that team. I think that they understood that I had a passion for the space. They understood that I had a differentiated mechanism for adding value. They felt and understood, maybe most importantly, that at a macro level, there was money to be made and there was no ego. I mean, I talked to other kind of young investors and they would find great deals and then the board seat would be taken by somebody else or the credit would be taken by somebody else or you'd invest in something and it would become super successful and then suddenly it would no longer be your deal. It was somebody else's deal. That never happened to me, ever. It sounded like such an incredible experience you had there and the right people and you still talk so highly of 14W. More from our guest, but first, a word from our sponsors. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. And our next sponsor. Every entrepreneur needs a good credit card. However, most credit cards don't reward small businesses. The world of Hyatt Business Credit Card is designed to reward small business owners and Hyatt customers for how they do business. Now, more than ever, small business owners have demonstrated their resilience and innovation as they continue to navigate the challenges of the current environment. Business owners look to be rewarded in personalized ways for how they do business. This new card allows every business expense 
from hotel rooms to cell phone bills to shipping fees and more to be a vehicle for personalized and valuable rewards, which can be used on one-of-a-kind experiences across World of Hyatt's 19 brands and more than 1,000 locations worldwide. The World of Highest business credit card is now available and has an annual fee of $199. For information about the new World of Hyatt business credit card, visit www.chase.com slash world of Hyatt. And we're back. What was it where you decided then to create your own business? And can you talk about why and why with who, meaning Natalie, that yep. both decided to create imaginary ventures? So I think part of in any market, you have to figure out how you get entrepreneurs to take your money. And in the early days, that was easier in part because there was less capital. Basically, in the 10 years since then, there's been exponentially more capital. So as a result of that, that's gotten harder and harder. But figuring out your pitch and your value add, I think, is critical. And I knew that I couldn't sit around the table with the entrepreneurs I was working with and profess to be the most technical investor. Technical being not necessarily detail-oriented, technical being the e-commerce tech that enabled these companies. I knew that the legacy firms that had been built in the Valley would have a real ability to be able to do that and position that and sell that. And for me, what I felt I could unlock differently was bringing relationships in and around retail. So tech is an important part of how an e-commerce company scales, but it's not the only part. You have marketing, you have product, you have brand, you have infrastructure, you have omni-channel, you have multi-channel distribution. And I was a deep admirer of what Natalie did at Net-A-Porte well before we became friends and well, well, well before we started a, a firm together. And I think people forget now because all these things are common, but you know, the idea of someone buying a $5,000 dress on the internet 20 years ago was shocking to people. And fashion tends to be an industry that's very, very slow moving. So getting groups like that comfortable with you being a custodian of their product and selling their product is really, really hard. And I was really blown away by her ability to create a sense of desire through the internet in a moment in time when most people hadn't cracked that yet. And she'd done it with very, very little capital. And I felt looking at the landscape, one of the only places where I think the association with other brands on the platform actually added to your prestige was Netaporte. And so, you know, I think we did a collaboration with Reformation while I was at 14W. I know Glossier did an international partnership together. And my view on that was, this is accretive customer acquisition. This gets you to a new customer. It does it inexpensively and it's on brand. If anything, one could argue it's brand additive. You're actually adding a more premium sensibility to your brand by, as, a, as a byproduct of the association with that business. So we sort of started working together through that lens. And I kind of selfishly was like, hey, how can we do more with you? And I knew people that had worked 
for NAP and I had met other people on her team. And I knew Natalie had a unique ability to build a team and to really think about the future. And that's really what a VC is doing, right? You're thinking about what things look like five, 10 or 15 years from now, and you're putting kind of P&L dollars behind it. So I had no real intentions of leaving. And honestly, I, I didn't come from a traditional venture background. Like most of my peers who have left traditional established firms have left with LP relationships and kind of leave with sort of having that kind of backing in place and really understanding the systems of it. This was a very, very different structure. How did the idea then come about? Who asked who? How did you say, Natalie, or how did she say, how do we do this together? So she, and this is all quite public, she left NAP in 2015, not on the most desirable of circumstances. And when she left, I called her, not the day she left, but but shortly thereafter, and said, I want to know, I want to be the first person to know whatever you do next. Truthfully, I thought that that would be a standalone business. That, that was what I thought. You know, she said exactly the right thing, which is, I have no idea of what I am doing next. I'm going to take this time to learn and be introspective and think about what I want the next chapter of my life to to look like. And then, and it sort of dovetails nicely into how we actually thought of the name. Then like nine months later, I was reading WWD and there was a headline, Natalie Massinative Form Imaginary Ventures. And so I called her and I said, well, you, you did promise me that whenever you figure out what you're doing next, that you call me. She said, well, Nick, this is literally nothing. I created a shell of an entity to make personal seed investments out of. And I didn't know what to call it. So I called it imaginary. There, like literally there's nothing else. And this is, you know, WWD seeing this sort of filing in the house of records and, you know, writing a story about it. So that was actually how we really began talking about this and thinking about this. And I, again, maybe a little selfishly, I sort of felt like she would be an extraordinary angel in the deals that we looked at together. And the idea was we're writing larger checks at 4TW. She could come in, she could join as a board member. She would have her own unique deal flow. This is someone that, that I could organically build a relationship with over time. And I don't, I don't know the moment where it clicked that we would make this our future. We definitely crawled for a long time. It was very, very organic. We didn't start fundraising until 2017, and Natalie left Net-A-Porte in 2015. So we spent the better part of like two years just jamming on deal flow together. And then I think there was a moment in time, and it's the irony is that there wasn't a probably one moment, but a series of moments that added to each other. I think there was a moment in time when we decided that there was an opportunity to build a great firm that was focused on the customer journey and the customer wallet in a unique way. And that sensibility of my background as an investor and Natalie's background as an operator with a really shared vision of what great entrepreneurship and what great brands looked like could share. But it wasn't one moment, I think, was 
a very slow evolution around us getting to know each other and building confidence. And I, I actually say that to most people that are thinking about starting a firm with other people, take your time. Yeah, that's uh, for sure. Just coming from my own business, I've been fortunate to build a few businesses and with the same partner who it's so important just from a trust perspective and understanding their strengths, your strengths. And it sounded like you had that courtship and you worked with Natalie and you both knew what you were getting into. And when you do launch Imaginary or come on board and be partners with Natalie, and start raising money, even with your backgrounds, was that a difficult process? Was that hard to do? Hugely so. We didn't have pre-existing LP relationships, really. We knew people in the retail world. Natalie had only raised 10 million pounds for Net-A-Porte. I had worked from a single family office. It took a year to raise a first $70 million fund. And honestly, we set out to raise 100 and we only raised 70. So we raised less than we wanted to, in part because I think eventually you hit fundraising fatigue and you're kind of like, all right, the market has spoken. This is how much money Natalie and I have to put to work over the next two years. Let's concentrate on executing on it rather than concentrating on raising more money around it. And I think it was the best outcome because... You know, it forced us to be really, really thoughtful around everything that we did, maybe forced us to move a little bit slower because we weren't flushed with capital and we wanted to, to think about the pacing of it in a, in a different kind of way. And we, we actually took a portion of our GP commitment into the fund and used it to begin to make investments over the course of 2017 while we were fundraising. And the amazing part is some of those original tiny seed investments have actually gone on to be extraordinary companies. We invested in a, a company called 30 Madison, which has a kind of a principal product called Keeps in the, in the men's hair loss space. We invested in that right as the founders had left Google pre, pre, pre-launch. And then we invested in Daily Harvest when Rachel, like right after Rachel, the founder had just left Guilt Group. And I remember she was still making smoothies. It was a smoothie only business at that point. She was still making smoothies out of her kitchen. And, you know, both of those companies have gone on to become unicorns. So it was a really nice 12 months to actually be able to start building consensus together and deploying dollars together, albeit on a much smaller scale. And what was it like for you at that time? Obviously, it was great. You made some great investments, but you know those take time and you finally see where they go after a year or two. But this was you know, your own shop, right? With Natalie. Was there anxiousness, worry, were questioning maybe, you know, should I work for someone else? Uh, what was that like for you going back to that time? I believed in Natalie. I believed in myself. I believed in the yin and yang of the two of us together and how that could be differentiated. And I believed that we had a unique point of view on the market and that the way to take advantage of that the most would be for us to do it together as opposed to doing it for somebody else. And it took me, a, a, I think, especially in the consumer product landscape, I think it's very easy for people to say, oh, 
being a good consumer product investor is less of a skill than being a great software investor because everybody knows something about consumer products because they live and breathe them every day, whereas everybody doesn't know something about software, right? So it's actually easy to get in your head and start to doubt success or aptitude or differentiation. And it took me a while to realize that actually, if anything, spotting iconic brands that had a real ability to scale potentially was harder because the consumer's view and appetite can change so drastically and brands probably have to reinvent themselves in a faster clip than they did 20 or 30 years ago. If anything, those identifiers are harder, I think, to come across. So it took me a long time to believe in that skill and that ability. And I don't know when it happened. It definitely, I definitely had that confidence when we went out and started, but you know, it was there and it was important. And, you know, looking back, and I I didn't know this at the time, looking back, I think it's so important. Like, I think I, I hope that I have been, maybe softened is the wrong word, but I am more aware of what it means for an entrepreneur to be vulnerable and come to you and ask you for money and have that dialogue and be open-minded about a partnership. I'm much more aware of those things today than I was before because I have put myself in a similar position raising capital with Natalie, right? When you come from a single family office, that doesn't happen. Like the dollars are there. You certainly hope that you're not taking them for granted, but you don't have rejection built into your sensibility in the same way that a founder does. Before I let you go, I want to ask you one last question in terms of looking at being an entrepreneur today. And like you said, you must talk to hundreds of these folks and especially within the areas you guys are focusing on at Imaginary. If you were an entrepreneur today or wanted to be starting a business, especially coming out of this pandemic, hopefully, what areas would you be focusing on? And what would you be looking at if you were to put yourself into these shoes right now? It's a great, 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 great question. Focused on in terms of themes or in terms of like cultural elements of what a business should look like? I I think in terms of themes and ideas, where would you kind of try and put yourself and learn and create a business there? Well, I think the most obvious opportunity, I think it's also potentially right now the most competitive and maybe the most risky, but I think the most exciting opportunities today are around thinking about the evolution of digital goods and NFTs and everything that exists within that universe. When we started the firm in 2018, we closed our first fund in 2018. If you had told me that people would pay real dollars to buy digital tokens of Air Jordans, I would have laughed in your face. Like I, I would never have believed that. And I think time has told us that actually the digital universe for products is real. And I think that was a that's happened over the last 15 years, right? In a way, like you and I are communicating on Zoom right now, like this happens to be an Everlane sweater that I purchased, but how would one know whether or not I bought a digital version of that to wear on this Zoom conversation? So I think the way in which we live our lives and communicate with each other has informed the ability for that to kind of grow and scale, but it's a newer phenomenon. And 
I think it has extraordinary promise. Like in a way you're talking about a digital version of product. You have the opportunity to think about digital versions of product that have almost a hundred percent margin. So in a universe like apparel where not only do you not have anywhere close to hundred percent margin, but you have supply chain difficulties and inventory sellouts and all of that. This is a real way around, not not necessarily around that. It's a way to think about the future of a business in a different kind of way. And it's early. Like, I don't think every company that we're an investor in could create digital tokens tomorrow and create real value out of those. But I think some could, and I think it will grow and it will increase. And really part of the opportunity is brands thinking about what that unlocks. It's not just the digital token itself. It's also what it grants you. Do you have access to early product drops? Do you have access to more detail and depth around a product? Do you have access to some kind of royalty stream when that product is resold? That I almost look at that as business development type decisions, right? When you think about actually how you're how you're leveraging these in a unique way to keep the customer satisfied and captivated. So I'm spending a lot of time there. I think we're aware of how competitive that market is, but there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for investors to invest in interesting businesses and obviously for entrepreneurs to start interesting businesses. Well, Nick, appreciate your time. It is always wonderful talking to anyone who was born and raised on the Upper West Side. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) That is my home. In any case, really appreciate you coming on admire your success. I am sure you and Natalie are going to be involved in tons of companies that are really changing the landscape, already are, and uh, wishing you an imaginary the best of luck. And I'm sure we're going to be hearing uh, some more stories about some of the businesses you've been involved with and your growth. So thanks for coming on. Thank you and, and happy holidays. Happy holidays. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.